0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 6, though I would encourage you to take some time this week, maybe even this afternoon, and read the entirety of the chapter. The whole chapter holds together as a new vision that is being shown to John and relayed to us. So in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, we're going to be introduced to this new vision. And it's a vision of the woman and the great red dragon. So if you have your copy of God's Word, would you follow along with me as I read the first six verses, and we'll pray together, and then we'll begin to study it together. John tells us, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for the opportunity that you have given to us, the freedom to gather for the purpose of r- responding to your word, of, of listening to your word, of singing your word, of hearing your word, and, and now we are set to receive it. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move among us, that you would give us understanding, that you would bring uh, the, the appropriate conviction to our hearts and the appropriate encouragement and comfort to us as well. I pray that you would have your way with us and that you would fill our hearts and minds with the knowledge of the truth so that we can be sanctified in it. I pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. If you were were asked to summarize the message of the entire Bible in one sentence, how do you think you would do it? A few years ago, a man by the name of Dane ortland he's an author and a, and a pastor and a theologian, he, he asked this question on his blog, this was back in 2011, and he got some really interesting responses. And since he's a scholar, he got responses from a lot of scholars, guys that we read all the time. I'll just pull out a few of them that I found interesting. Here was one. So this is a a summary of the message of the entire Bible in one sentence. Here it is. God chose one man, Abraham, in order to make him one great nation, Israel, so that through it he might bring forth one great Savior, Jesus, and through him demonstrate God's glory and extend God's grace to all creation. That's pretty good pretty good. I mean, there's some things he left off in there, but that's a pretty fair summary. Here's one that's a lot shorter and straight to the point. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. Exclamation point. (laughs) I like that. Simple. I'm a simple guy. The next one though, the next one is my favorite. Scripture tells us the story of how a garden is transformed into a garden city. But only after a dragon had turned the garden into a howling wilderness, a haunt of owls and jackals, which lasted until an appointed warrior came to slay the dragon, giving up his life in the process, but with his blood affecting the transformation of the wilderness into the garden city. I really like that one. That was Doug Wilson, by the way. The Bible begins with creation and a wedding, Genesis 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, the Bible introduces us to an ancient serpent, a dragon who wants to claim the creation for himself. And in Genesis chapter 3, there is this face-off between the dragon and the woman. And John tells us here in Revelation 12, that that battle is still going on. Once again, the revelation, as we've been learning, as we've studied it together, the revelation reaches back into Old Testament history and pulls these Old Testament stories into the present day to explain things to us that will help us to live for Christ in our own day. And in this particular case, it's helping us to understand something of the struggle that is going on between the church and the devil. This is not a new battle. And we've reached the point, the halfway point in the Revelation, when what many call this the heart of the book. Because things are going to shift a little bit from the focus of what's happening on earth here and now, to what's happening beneath the surface in the spiritual realm. In chapters 1 through 11, what we saw is we saw these themes that were developing uh, through the three series of visions that John gets, and he talks to us about the battle between the church and the world. But in chapter 12, he, he takes us into, here's a modern reference, into the upside down, and he shows us that what's taking place on the earth is actually being fueled by this spiritual battle underneath everything. The, fo- the focus of chapters 12 through the end of the book, is upon the devil as the source of all evil in the world, and he is still targeting the woman and her offspring today. So in our passage this morning, we are going to see three things. Number one, we're going to learn about a woman clothed with the sun. We're going to learn about this great red dragon who is set on devouring. And then we're going to learn about the birth of a king who was going to rule over all of the nations. So let's look back at verse 1, and let's learn again about this woman clothed with the sun. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and, and her head and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she is pregnant, crying out in birth pains. Now, a little bit of... Uh, you know, let's get the lay of the land here. As this new vision gets underway, John sees this great sign appear in heaven. The, the idea of a sign is that this is a remarkable thing that's happening. This is a, a remarkable event, and God is allowing John to see this. And, and he's seeing this so he can communicate to the church a message from the Lord. And the message is about the spiritual conflict that we face in this world. The sign gives us details about the history and the ongoing reality of the battle between Christ and his people versus the ancient serpent. Now, we just finished up the second set of sevens in our study of the Revelation. Right? If you think back, maybe, maybe you haven't been with us during this study. Well, well, what John does is we're seeing a series of seven different visions, seven different aspects of the church age, and they're broken up in such a way that he even gives us seven things within those. So we first saw the seven seals. You remember that, the seven seals that were opened. The scroll was received by Christ. He opened those seals, and those seals give us some understanding of what's taking place during the church age. And then we just finished studying the seven trumpets. Those trumpets followed the seals. The trumpets were a warning to the world. And then you all know in the back of your mind or maybe in the forefront of your mind that at at some point we're going to get to the seven bowls of wrath, right? So we know that. We've got the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. But before we get there, John has another series of seven. We just started Revelation 12 verse 1 and and it goes all the way through chapter 15 verse 4 and in that we see a series of seven different signs. And these signs tell us about the history of God's people and and it introduces us to certain characters that play a role to help us understand that. So if, if you want to take notes, you can write this down really quickly. The, the conflict between the woman and the dragon, that's what we have in chapter 12. So that's the first sign out of seven, the conflict between the woman and the dragon. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, we see the persecution by the beast from the sea. So we'll get into that in the weeks to come. In chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, we see the persecution by the beast from the land. And both both of these beasts are animated and empowered by this great dragon that we're learning about today. In uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we have the lamb and the 144,000, which we've already been introduced to in, in previous visions. In chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, we have this angelic proclamation of the gospel and the judgment. And by the way, if you want this, I will, I'll repeat it for you in a minute. Uh, then in chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, we have the Son of Man's harvest of the earth. And then finally, in chapter 15, just in the first few verses, we see the saint's victory over the beast. So again, we have seven signs, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs, seven bowls. It seems as though John likes these series of sevens. So that's what we're going to be studying over the next couple of weeks and months. But today, it's about the the conflict between the woman and the dragon. And as we progress through these visions, we're going to see directional language that comes out. Language like, a great sign appeared. Or then it will say, and then I saw. Or, and then I looked and behold. And all of this is giving us some direction. Each of these seven signs focuses on the underneath, the spiritual side of the battle that we face in this world as the people of God. The characters appear in symbolic form. They are symbols representing the two sides of the cosmic warfare that's taking place, even as we speak. So God is giving us a deeper look at these things, so that we can understand more clearly what the Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, John's visions help us to understand this. And the initial scene that we're seeing here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, is of this woman. And the woman is clothed with the radiance of the sun. She has the moon under her feet. And she has 12, uh, she's got a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, obviously, this language is symbolic. And the question we have to answer is, what does this woman or who does this woman symbolize? The Catholic Church, as you might expect, declares that this is obviously Mary, the mother of Jesus. Contrary to Catholic dogma, this woman does not represent the Virgin Mary, at least not exclusively. But who does this woman represent? Well, we have to look at the vision itself to try to make sense out of that. The fact that the woman is associated with the sun and the moon and the stars, it gives us a clue. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the different Old Testament passages that give us a clue for this. I'm going to go to the first one because the first one is the most clear. The fact that the sun, the moon, and the stars are associated with a vision draws our attention back to Joseph and his dream in Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph, the youngest son of Jacob, has a dream, and in that dream he sees the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. Do y'all remember that, that vision? It was an odd thing. It was an interesting thing. It it caused Joseph to get some flack from his family. They call him the the dreamer. Oh, here comes the dreamer of dreams, right? But one of the reasons why he, he was not looked upon so favorably is that when this dream was interpreted, it meant something that was less than favorable to his brothers. When Joseph told the dream to his father, Jacob, when Jacob, Israel, his name was changed to Israel at that point, he interpreted the dream right away. And he wasn't happy with his son's dream because the sun and the moon and the stars represented Joseph's father, Joseph's mother, and Joseph's brothers. You may remember that. And they were bowing down to him. The vision of the sun, moon, and stars, it represented, I'm going to bring it back to where we are in the Revelation, it represented all of the patriarchs. It represents for us the people of God under the old covenant, the 12 tribes and if we project that understanding forward and we see all of the other little visions of sun and moon and stars and, and how they're used, then we would understand that this language is representing to us an understanding of the old covenant people of God who are awaiting the Messiah. So this is a look at the Old Testament saints. But that's not the end of the vision. John also sees that this woman is pregnant. pregnant. She's about to give birth. Her child is a man who will rule all the nations. But he was caught up to God and to God's throne. Now, this is quite obvious, right? At least I hope it's obvious. The male child here is a reference to Jesus. And God protects Jesus. The the, the child is born. He has his purpose. We don't get a lot of information about his ministry in this particular vision because that's not the specific point of the vision. But the child, the, the male child is born and then he's caught up to God And the battle between the dragon and the woman continues. God protects the woman because she has to flee out into the wilderness. And God protects the woman for 1,260 days for three and a half years. And that's numerology that we've already studied before. In chapter 11, we understand that that language is a reference to the age of the church. And later in this vision, we see that the dragon not only continues to pursue the woman, but he pursues the woman's offspring, the seed of the woman. So the picture grows. In chapter 12, verse 17, it says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And then it explains who the rest of her offspring are, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So not only does this woman represent the old covenant saints, but we see here when we pull all of this together that this woman represents the new covenant saints as well. That's you and I. This woman represents the new covenant people of God, the church, as well as the old covenant people of God. And if I could just summarize all of that by using a quote from William Hendrickson that I think makes a great point here, I'm going to do that. Here's what he says. Scripture emphasizes that the church in both dispensations is one. Don't get frightened by that word, dispensation. It's okay. It's a good word to use. It is one chosen people in Christ. It is one tent, it is one vineyard, it is one family, and Abraham is the father of all, whether the circumcised or the uncircumcised, according to Paul in Galatians 3. It is one olive tree, it is one elect race, it is one royal priesthood, one holy nation, and people for God's one possession." One beautiful bride, and in its consummation, one new Jerusalem. Now, this is projecting forward in the Revelation. We're going to be housed in one new Jerusalem, and the gates will bear the names of the 12 tribes, and the foundations will be inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. So what am I saying? In this vision, the symbol of this woman is intended to represent for us all of the people of God. The Old Testament saints who trusted in the promises of God and looked forward to the Messiah and new covenant saints like us who trust in the Messiah who's already come and lived and died and was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of Father and is coming again. That's who the woman represents. And this woman is under attack. The people of God are under attack. Now let's learn a little bit more about the great red dragon. Go back to verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. So we've seen the first sign of the woman. Now we see the second sign. And behold, it is a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, seven crowns. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth." Now, these characters are symbolic, but we don't have to look too far to figure out who this particular character is. There's no mistaking who the dragon is. The dragon represents Satan himself. And we know this because as we continue to read in in chapter 12, and we get down to verse 9, let your eyes go to verse 9, we read that this great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, who is the deceiver of the whole world. So we don't have to look too far to understand who this represents. This image of Satan as a great red dragon. This is not the first time we learn about him in this form. We we learn about him in that form in the prophets. We learn about him in that form in the Old Testament as well. And when we, we see this picture, this symbolic picture of Satan as this great red dragon, the idea is to convey to us his enormous power. He is a spiritual being of significant power. And the fact that this dragon is ready to devour the child as soon as he is born shows us his repulsive anger toward Christ. And the fact that he continues to pursue the woman and the seed of the woman who are the people of God shows how much he is desirous to devour even us, the saints. The dragon has seven crowned heads and ten horns. And, and we've looked at this in other visions. This this symbolism is meant to help us understand that the way in which the dragon is going to employ his schemes to devour the church is going to come through the kingdoms and rulers of this world. And the number seven symbolizes a thing in its fullness or its completion. And all of this lets us know That the evil that we face in this world, the persecution that we face in this world, all of the malice that is directed towards Christ and his elect comes from one hellish source. That's the point of this vision. Satan is the representative head of all the evil kingdoms on earth. And yes, especially those who are in power today. It says that his tail swept a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to earth. Now, some of you have been taught that this is a reference to the amount of angels that Satan brought with him in his rebellion. That's basically the way I was taught this a long time ago. And some will argue that point, that this is talking about the fact that that a third of the angels who were in heaven, Satan convinced them to join him in the rebellion and, and they were cast to the earth in judgment. And I don't know if that's the answer or not. It could very well be what we're seeing here. Uh, This vision of him sweeping the stars out of heaven, it comes from Daniel chapter eight and verse 10. And the reason I don't know if he's talking about the angels or if he's talking about something else is that Daniel's not clear on who it is that these stars represent. It is clear throughout the Old Testament that stars often are referring to angels. They're referring to heavenly beings. So it very well may be that but whether this is talking about angels or saints, or whether this is just talking about Satan attacking the divine order of heaven, we don't know, but we do know this, the dragon has attacked heaven itself. That's the picture. The dragon has attacked heaven itself. And now he has set his gaze upon God's people. And of course, we know enough stories, right, to know that that's what dragons do. I mean, think about some of the stories that we read as children, or maybe you watch them on television, stories about dragons. What do they do? Dragons come and they take away the most precious thing that a people has. It's usually their beautiful princess, right? And the dragon will take that beautiful princess and he will hide her away in a tower somewhere. All of our dragon stories follow a similar, I mean, unless it's Pete's dragon, but most of y'all don't even know Pete's dragon, The dragon from our stories, they're hideous, they're fearsome creatures, they stay hidden in their dungeon, just loving their gold. But you know when you read the story that that all the sorrow in the land is the result of the dragon. Right? Well, the dragon in Revelation 12 is not simply a fantasy monster who has locked the princess in the tallest tower. Nor. Is this simply some apocalyptic monster who's supposed to come out onto the earth in some future date? This is the same serpent who has been pursuing the people of God since the beginning. And the symbolic nature of this vision is helping us to understand that we're dealing with the same devil, the same deceiver, the same serpent from the garden. He has opposed God and God's purposes ever since Eden, and the whole of Scripture draws our attention to him, and not just to him, but also to his failures. In Genesis 3, Satan deceived Eve and led humanity into rebellion. But God cursed the serpent and promised to undo all the damage that he caused. In Job, we learn of Satan taking his seat at the council room like a young hotshot lawyer. You know, he's got his his arguments here and he wants to do what he's going to do. And even then, his designs fail because Job refuses to curse God and die. In Isaiah... In Ezekiel, in Daniel, the great dragon is identified as the enemy of heaven who attacked but failed because of God's intervention. And then when we get into the Gospels, into the New Testament, we know that it is Satan who stirred up Herod to try to kill Jesus when he was born. But that plan failed. Satan himself tempted Jesus in the wilderness, but he came up empty as well. And Satan may have believed that he had actually conquered and done something when the crucifixion actually occurred and Jesus breathed his last. He may have thought, well, that's an end to the plan of God. And yet the resurrection proved that once again, he had utterly failed. And with Christ's ascension into heaven, the dragon has now directed his anger to the church exclusively. He is currently targeting the disciples of Christ But like all of his failed schemes, this plan too will ultimately fail. And that's what this whole chapter will teach us, and we'll learn about it in the weeks to come. Now, today, many people, even some who claim to be Christians, believe that as modern folks, we have progressed beyond a belief in spiritual forces of darkness. And as postmodern people, many completely deny the existence of Satan and mock the thought of a spiritual enemy directing his supernatural malice at those who believe. And yet God's word sets the record straight. It it pulls back the veil and allows us to see the spiritual realities that give fuel to the physical realities that we experience on a day-to-day basis. And the apostle Peter made it very clear at the end of his first letter in chapter 5, He says, be sober, be watchful, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's still set on devouring. Resist him, he tells us. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we've, we've been introduced to the woman who's a, represent, a representation of all of the people of God in both covenants, and now we're seeing this dragon, this dangerous enemy that is set to devour, but it's God who has the final word. So let's look back at verse 4, in the middle of verse 4, and let's see the birth of this king who's going to rule the nations. It says, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. So Satan is poised to devour the hope of the woman. He wants to devour the child who is coming to save all of God's people, but the Lord intervenes. Now just think back a little bit Uh, to what we know about the the time before Jesus was born. We can think about Mary, even though I don't think the Catholic Church is right about that interpretation. Uh, Satan failed to kill Jesus as a newborn because even though Herod had schemes, right, God gave a vision. Do you remember the the wise men? God gave a vision to the wise men and told them not to return to Herod because something wasn't right about that. And so they didn't. And then God gave a a vision, another dream, uh, to Joseph to take the child into Egypt to protect him. So God intervened even though Satan was on the attack at that particular time. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry... How many times did he come into contact with various demons that he cast out of certain individuals? The dragon continued to fail. Now, this vision skips over the ministry of Jesus. And the reason that it does that, well, I think, I think from that we can deduce that the main focus of these visions is to prepare the church for the battle that we're facing, right? Right? Um, but the, the, the vision skips over the, the life of Jesus and the, the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection. It goes straight to the ascension and the crowning of Jesus. The male child is set to rule over the nations and he was rescued from the dragon, caught up to heaven. Jesus accomplished his mission at the cross, but the dragon is still set on destruction. So he shifts his gaze From the child to the woman and then to the church. And this woman and the battle that she faces, she flees into the wilderness to get away and God protects her and he nourishes her while she's in the wilderness. Now, this is also Old Testament imagery. Maybe you picked up on it. This is Exodus terminology. The Old Testament imagery of the children of Israel being delivered from Pharaoh, right? In the same way that... um, You you see Jesus being delivered from the king at that time. He goes out into the wilderness. All of this is woven into this vision. Pharaoh tried to kill the male children just as Satan tried to kill Jesus when he was born. God rescued the children of Israel by his power just as he rescued Jesus and raised him up to heaven. The Israelites were led into the wilderness and yes, they grumbled, but God nourished them and God protected them and sustained them. And we as Christians today are living in a wilderness of exile. And we're walking to, we're marching to the promised land, and along the way, we are being nourished and protected by God, by His Word and His Spirit, until that day comes when He returns and He defeats the enemy for good. And God is going to look after the woman, just like God is going to look after us for 1,260 days, that three and a half years, that's that's the whole age of the church, and He's going to sustain us, and He's going to protect us the entire time. God protects us in the wilderness. Which is, as we all know, I know we like to talk about the wilderness as we walk into those dry places during our walk with Christ, but the, the New Testament will talk about the whole of the experience of the believer as a wilderness. We're not where we want to be. We're not in that place of perfect rest. And while we're in this, the wilderness of this world, we're going to face temptations. We're going to face trials. And yet, God is going to sustain us and nourish us. If you're a believer in Christ, and you have come out of your bondage to sin by faith, and you have been set free, and the Spirit of God, now that we're members of the new covenant, right? Now the Spirit of God has not only opened our eyes and given us a new heart, but He dwells within us so that we learn to love our Savior more and more. And we walk by faith, understanding that we are forgiven because the sacrifice has been made. And being nourished by that sacrifice day by day, we continue to walk in this world knowing that our old slave master is dead and we're we're living to serve our new master until he comes. And no, we have not yet entered that perfect rest. We still live in a world where... Our enemy is seeking to devour us. We still live in a world where the path is narrow and dangerous. And yet, suffering though it is common for all of those who trust in Christ by faith, we have the promise that God is going to nourish us and protect us until he comes. Now that's the vision. There's more that we can learn, certainly, and we're going to learn more in the next couple of weeks. But the vision doesn't give us a lot of practical stuff. It just gives us a picture. And we're supposed to discern what that means and how we're supposed to live in it. And so I want to offer you three, three practical applications on how we, as the seed of this woman under the attack of the enemy, how we can be prepared to be faithful while we're in the wilderness of this world. Three things I want to say. The story of the dragon and the woman is not over. And we must prepare our hearts. That's the first thing we must do. We must prepare our hearts for the spiritual attacks that will come. Maybe you're walking in the midst of a spiritual attack now and you don't know it. Maybe you do. Peter tells us that The devil's like a roaring lion who is prowling around seeking someone to devour. And I don't know how much you've ever studied lions, but this is an odd posture for a lion. It's not how lions hunt their prey, right? They're ambush predators. They hide. And then when their prey walks by, they, they pounce on it, or they sneak up, and then they attack, and then they seek to devour it. They don't walk around roaring, letting everybody know, hey, here I am. Typically, a lion is not going to act that way, but Peter says something to us that we should be able to know and recognize the lion when he's on the prowl. We see his influence in our world every day. Satan wants to devour your faith with the godless ideas and unbiblical worldviews that you're being inundated with. Did y'all hear that? Satan wants to devour your faith with the godless ideas and unbiblical worldviews that you're being inundated with. He wants to devour your faith by tempting you to believe that you are the center of the universe instead of God. He wants to devour your faith by having you idolize influencers and celebrities who make you believe that the most important thing about you is how you look on your social media feeds. He wants to devour your faith by causing you to believe the truth that you are the thing that matters most, that your truth mentality. These are all lies, I mean, listen, most people don't wander away from trusting in Christ because they saw a sign-up sheet for a, you know, a, a, a class on Monday night for devil worship. That's not how that happens. It happens when some unbiblical idea gets shared by a friend or a professor or someone online and that idea takes root and it eventually will take over your thinking. Our enemy wants to devour our faith. He wants to deceive our minds. He wants to tempt us to fix our heart on sin, and we must resist. And Peter tells us to resist by being firm in the faith. Firm in the faith, filling your minds with God's truth and fixing your hearts on what is good. Brother, sister, I don't know that there's any way you're going to do that apart from a regular and consistent and ongoing study of God's word. To read it, to understand it, to discuss it with other faithful brothers and sisters to study it deeply, to think deeply on it and to apply it to the way that you live and to let it give you lenses by which you can look at the world and make sense out of things for the glory of God and not just for the pleasure of your flesh. I don't think you're going to just prepare your hearts for this particular type of attack by just going along and getting along. You're going to have to fill your hearts and minds with the word of God. Prepare your hearts for this spiritual attack. Second, you need to believe and know the truth of the gospel. You need to believe and know the truth of the gospel. It's really easy for us in a culture that has a lot of different views on what, is, what, what passes as Christian doctrine, or especially what passes as the central truth of Christian doctrine. And and I was taught early on in my faith, or at least I, I assumed this by what I was being taught, that the gospel was just that childish message that we preach to individuals who were lost so that they could get saved. And then when they came into the church, we taught them all these other wonderful things about God, like how to live and all that kind of stuff. And as I grew in my knowledge of God's word, I understood, I came to a knowledge that we are not just supposed to preach the gospel, the good news of Christ to unbelievers so that they can get saved this is something that you and I as believers must preach to ourselves daily. We must know the gospel and understand that the gospel tells us the story of who we are. God's love for us is directed to us through the gospel, and and so we need to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves on a regular basis. And just so we're clear, what is the gospel? It's the most important lesson in all of Scripture. It's the most important news that you could ever hear. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for sinners like you and me by his death on the cross. The central truth of the Christian faith is that Jesus... The eternal Son of God, both God and man. See, here we go with this knowledge of the supernatural as well as the physical. God and man. He's the eternal Son of God who became a man so that he could rescue man from the punishment our sin deserves. And he did this by living the righteous life we could never live on our own and by dying in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he was raised to new life by the Father to show that he had done everything that was necessary to save us and our identity as the believer and our understanding of the love of God is shown to us in that picture. We don't... Come to God and hold up our trophies and say, Look at all these wonderful things I did to you, therefore you should accept me. That's not the gospel. That's legalism. That's not the gospel of Scripture. We come to Christ with nothing but our sin. We come to Christ with empty hands and we receive what He has done for us. And when we receive what He has done for us by the Spirit's power, we are new creatures. Our whole identity changes, our inheritance changes, our citizenship changes, and now the anger of the enemy is directed right at us. And when we fail, which we will, when we stumble on our way through this wilderness, you know what? We don't have to get saved all over again, but we do have to remember that gospel truth. That the God who loved us and gave himself for us gives us access to him so that we can come and confess our sins in repentance. We can remember his love in the gospel and we can get up and we can walk again tomorrow and be faithful or strive for that. We need to prepare our hearts for spiritual attack by filling our minds. And we need to prepare our hearts also by knowing and believing the gospel. Learn to preach the gospel to yourselves daily. And I don't know how you feel about this, but when I wake up in the morning and my uncoffied self tries to figure out what my day is going to be like, it's hard, but I have to remember that I'm a child of God because of my faith in Christ, which is a gift. And I have a purpose in this world and it's to go out into the world to be salt and light wherever I am. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves and let it fuel the way we live. So we need to know the gospel and we need to believe it every day. And third, lastly, We need to persevere and never let go of Christ. Commit yourself to the word of God in prayer. Commit yourself to the gospel. It's easy for us, and we all could confess this, it's easy for us to slip into the the common going through the motions of once a week religion, right? You come to church, you get everything you need, you go back. And yet... If we ask ourselves, why is God giving us this vision of what's deeper and what's going on? We have to understand that He wants our knowledge and understanding to go deeper than just that. We need deeper anchors if we're going to walk faithfully amid the attacks of our enemy. And one of the reasons why Jesus helps us to see the spiritual side of our conflict is that He wants us to know that our perseverance is not simply tied to earthly realities our perseverance is also tied to spiritual realities. And here's what I mean by that. If we give up on our fight against sin and Satan and worldliness, what we're actually doing is we're compromising with the devil himself. Does that make sense? Because he shows us what's happening here, if we just put both feet in the world and we accept all the lies that come from it, we're not just stumbling We're compromising with the enemy. He wants us to see the deeper conflict. When we compromise with the world, we are abandoning the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And so we need to persevere, know this battle, persevere in the knowledge of God, persevere in the truth of the gospel, hold firmly to the hope that we have in Christ, even as we face these hard trials today. There's so much more for us to learn. I'm going to ask that you would bow with me and pray so that the Lord could allow this truth to get into our hearts. Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for what it shows us, what it says to us, and what it means for us. Help us not only to understand and believe the truth, but to walk in it. And we need your spirit to help us do that. We need one another. We need the encouragement that comes from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need your spirit and word. And so would you do this in us? Would you move in such a way that you give us a hunger for your word? A hunger to study and to read and to prepare our hearts against the attacks. Give us this humility of spirit that causes us to look to the gospel every day. Don't let us grow weary of looking to Christ and understanding what he has accomplished for us. And Father, help us to persevere knowing what this battle really means. Lord, have your way with us. Teach us and guide us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.